Instead of waking up in your own bed, I want you to imagine for a minute waking up today on a friend's couch, in a crowded apartment or house shared by multiple families, or waking up in a homeless shelter surrounded by complete strangers. On today's show, the student homelessness crisis impacting over 1 million youth. Why does it exist in the richest country in the world? And where do we go from here? Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please stop and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Right before the height of the pandemic, I was interviewing a young man named Sean as part of a UCLA study on the student homelessness crisis in California. Sean and I met at a drop-in center for homeless youth. Students will go to the drop-in center to shower, get clothes, food, apply for jobs, or even to get tutoring. Sean had traveled for over an hour and a half across LA County to get to the drop-in center before we met. When he described his educational history, he said, I felt like I was just passing through. I wrote about Sean in the introduction of Our Children Can't Wait because it's a reminder for me that we failed thousands of students like him. But scholars like Dr. Matt Morton of the Constellation Lab and Dr. Earl Edwards of Boston College are making sure housing insecure students like Sean are not only seen, but also supported. Here's Matt. Hi, everybody. I am uh, executive director of CoLab or Constellation Lab uh, at the Constellation Fund, and we focus on long-term research and evaluation of poverty-fighting solutions, and I have a history of working on youth and young adult and family homelessness. Uh, previously, I was at Chapin Hall at the University of Chicago and uh, working on these issues and have been involved in a long time. Great to be with you all. Professor Edwards, as a graduate student at UCLA and researcher with our center, really put the issue of student homelessness on my radar. And for that, I'm really grateful to Earl. Here he is. Joe, thank you for the invitation. My name is uh, Earl Edwards. I'm a assistant professor at Boston College, Lynn School of Education and Human Development. And my research really focuses on um, the intersections of student homelessness, education and also race and looking at race and racism's role in perpetuating some of the inequities we see in both school and also in housing. What seems like a fairly basic question about why people do what they do always leads to some of the most interesting insights from our guests. Matt and Earl are no different. How did your upbringing shape your interests as an educator and scholar? I'm definitely a nerd. I'm a trained researcher. I like long walks on the beach and evenings of designing unbiased sampling strategies. It's, it's <laughs> definitely part, part of my identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I came into this work because it has personal significance for me. I 
lost my mother uh, when I was young. Uh, my parents had separated, moved in with my father, and we had a lot of behavioral health addictions and struggles uh, in my household and a lot of early adverse childhood experiences growing up. And I had run away, but I always came back because somebody had to take care of my little sisters. And in the end, I was lucky because I, a high school English teacher saw potential in me. I grew up in Florida. I was 15 years old and she became my advocate. And she, she knew things must have been difficult in my environment. She didn't know the details. And she also happened to be a volunteer supporting a group of young people starting Florida's first fully youth-driven teen center where youth were doing everything from painting the walls to hiring and firing adult staff. It was a, a real youth-led model. And she got me involved in becoming part of this group of young people doing something bigger for their community and connection to both the community and school changed my life and set me on a different path. And when I was 17, I was invited to give uh, the keynote address for the White House's first National Youth Summit. And that kind of launched me overnight mm -hmm. into advocacy on youth empowerment and youth homelessness issues and prevention. But as I looked around, I realized not everybody was so lucky. Uh, mm -hmm. My little sister was one of those, and she's experienced homelessness and poverty and various systems involvement throughout her life. And mm -hmm. I got upset that there was such a thing as lucky and unlucky young people. So mm -hmm. I got into research because I believed a lot of youth like my little sister and predominantly black and brown young people in my community weren't so lucky. Mm -hmm. And I felt data and research could help make the invisible more visible. Mm -hmm. And I also became passionate about transcending good programs and getting to better systems. And schools play such a critical role in that. And better systems are essential to ensuring that we don't have such a thing as lucky and unlucky young people. Dr. Morden, it's powerful to hear your story and think about when we contacted you as this renowned scholar on issues of homeless education, but to know that where you started and, and where you've been and just where your commitment lies and congrats on your new role at the, at the Constellation Fund. Thank you. Dr. Edwards, same question. How did your upbringing shape your interest today as an educator and scholar? A similar kind of experience in terms of having um, lived experience of homelessness really shaped how I view this issue and also mm -hmm. how I advocate around the issue. So growing up, I experienced homelessness throughout my K-12 experience, probably a total of six years on and off of experiencing housing instability um, living in motels, living in homeless shelters, living with family members, staying with, with different friends. That really, really shaped kind of my personal connection with the issue around homelessness and, and school homelessness. School became one of the stable places as I went through my K-12 experience and also some of the programming, such as playing basketball and um, creating really strong friendships, really allowed me to you know, stay afloat during my K-12 experience. Uh, it wasn't until college when I actually had stable housing consistently for a longer period of time when I actually started to become a lot um, stronger academically. And hmm. so I shifted from um, kind of seeing myself as an athlete and kind of being, not really seeing myself as an academic or a, a scholar to then having the, the space um, to actually think about school and also mm. during the same time period, my mother received a Section 8 housing voucher. And so my family was stabilized as well. Mm. And I really tried to, you know, took off from there. And so I saw 
how education and also housing stability can actually change and shift outcomes for folks. Um, in addition to that, I was also a, a classroom teacher and I taught in Providence, Rhode Island. I was a special education teacher at the high school level. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of students that I was interacting with and I was um, teaching that were experiencing homelessness and also experiencing homelessness at an extent that I didn't even realize when I was actually in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. The Kenny Mental Homeless Assistance Act definition includes doubled up, mm-hmm. living with other individuals as a result of an emergency, um, housing emergency. And I'll hear my students talk about that and not realize that that was one them experiencing homelessness because it was so normalized within my experience. And two, not knowing that there was a policy and there was policies in place that was actually meant to support them. And so once I found mm-hmm. out about that policy during my doctoral studies, mm-hmm. uh, I really kind of committed myself to learn more about that policy and also to highlight some of the gaps within those policies when we try to actually help support students and kids. Absolutely. Now faculty at Boston College. So Earl, let's follow up with, with another question. I'm going to come back to Matt after this. So we have, as you and Matt and Melissa, Melissa Cole spell out, we have over 1 million students who are housing insecure in the wealthiest country in the world. Why is that? Yes, that's, that's a great question. That's something that really makes me really kind of think about kind of our priorities. And I think when we think about homelessness, I think it's very important that we recognize that having homelessness in the United States is a policy issue. Mm. Our policies dictate the lack of affordable housing, um, the lack of housing, and also the quality of housing that folks have. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that we recognize that this is an issue of policy and not an issue mm-hmm. of individuals. Oftentimes we pathologize those who fall into homelessness. Mm-hmm. We have misconceptions that majority of people experiencing homelessness have some type of drug addiction or um, some type of mental health issue. Mm-hmm. And while those things do exist within a homeless population, it also exists in our lawyer population, right? Um, a lot of uh, most affluent people in our country have drug addiction issues, also mm. have mental health issues that we don't stigmatize them for. Mm. And also, this is just not the re- reality of the majority of the people who are actually experiencing housing instability. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a policy issue. And there's been such a incongruence in terms of how we think about this policy issue. Mm. For example... The McKinney Mental Homes Assistance Act uh, was actually established in 1987. And that was actually the first time that the the federal government and also city governments started to actually see homelessness as an actual issue that was actually a public issue that they Mm -hmm. had to respond to. Prior to that, it was a charity model. We saw it as something that, you know, wealthier people would, would give to charities or organizations like the Salvation Army would address. Um, right. So it's relatively new that we actually have federal policies that are actually trying to target. And as a result of that legacy, we still have an orientation of looking at supporting individuals experience of homelessness as a charity endeavor. And so it's really important that we're pushing policies and also recognizing that this should be a mandate, mm. not an option. Mm-hmm. So we can make sure that all of our kids have the opportunity to thrive. To follow up on that, Matt, how do we define homelessness? in the, the K-12 space and in college space? Homelessness, according to educational policy, includes people who lack housing uh, and housing stability and housing permanency. And that can be 
inclusive of what a lot of people often think of as stereotypical homelessness, meaning they don't have a, a roof over their head or they're mm -hmm. staying in a shelter. But it can also mean doubling up mm -hmm. or couch surfing because you, they lack a safe and stable place to stay. They lack the economic resources for housing of their own. That makes up a big uh, proportion of students and their families who are experiencing homelessness in our country, in fact, the majority. And it's especially challenging because it's often under-recognized. Not all federal programs allocate resources, especially housing, to students and families that are in those situations. Mm. And it tends to be more invisible. It's much harder to count, to see, to identify. And so even though it makes up the majority of homelessness in our country, it's often far mm -hmm. more invisible. Earl talked about the McKinney-Vento definition and the housing urban development definition, at least at the federal level. Could you say a little bit more? So for the housing and urban development resources, HUD uh, funds the vast majority of housing resources for people experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. That's funded through a system of continuums of care. Mm -hmm. uh, so collective applicants in, in communities and localities that receive funds from HUD and redistribute those funds for housing and shelter and some services for people experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. The HUD definition for eligibility generally doesn't allow for those resources to be allocated to people who are doubling up. Mm -hmm. There are some exceptions, but it's very hard to be considered under those exceptions. And generally, the resources are prioritized only for people or families experiencing uh, more literal definitions of homelessness, meaning that they lack a place to stay that's meant for human habitation or they're staying in a homelessness or crisis services shelter. Mm -hmm. People who are ex experiencing homelessness in the form of couch surfing or doubling up, unless they can present evidence of clear and eminent physical violence or danger to themselves, it's very difficult for them to access those resources. I just want to add to, to Matt's point in terms of thinking about the, the HUD definition versus the school. Yep. One also distinction is that um, there is an overarching policy called the, the Hearth Act that puts all these definitions together. Mm -hmm. The problem is the resources and eligibility is not there, right? Mm -hmm. So because HUD has created eligibility requirements that are a, a lot more narrow, yep. that really creates the you know public definition of what homelessness is. Because in reality, if you're an adult, you have to look at what HUD is requiring of you to be actually to qualify for those actual resources. Hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of debate going back and forth in terms of how do we define mm -hmm. homelessness. And some folks are are saying that, you know, the federal government already defines McKinney-Vento doubled up as homeless. However, mm. the eligibility for services mm. is very, very stark and very different, which shifts the reality of the individuals who are actually experiencing it. So as an, as an adult, when you're trying to find housing, you go to a place that's HUD-funded within these COCs, they're telling you that if you're doubling up, you don't qualify. You're not mm. homeless enough. That has an impact on schools because right. now you're not going to think that your child qualifies for homeless services, right? Because the definition is very, very different from everywhere else you're going to in order to get re receive services. So that misalignment causes a lot of confusion and also um, impacts one who is actually identified in terms of if you actually even disclose that to schools and also what services and what protections that folks actually realize they actually have. And when we think about shifting, so from the defining to the who, Earl, when we talk about young people experiencing homelessness, what are the, the characteristics of 
of youth who would fall into this space? We know that anyone can fall into homelessness. Mm-hmm. However, when you look at the numbers and you look at the reality is this, um, it's a racialized issue. Mm-hmm. Black people and Latino people in particular parts of the country are overrepresented within the homeless population. And this is in direct response to the structural inequities that we have within our country. Um, Dating back to the enslavement, indigenous people as well, um, dating back to the removal of their land and also their sovereignty of the land. Those legacies of those policies that we had in place moving further up into the early 1900s in terms of redlining, those all had an impact on the wealth development and wealth accumulation in the United States that impacts the um, different communities that we have but also the people who live in those communities. Um, so as a result of redlining policies, for example, that restricted or um, provided federally backed loans to certain communities, right. those areas that did not get those resources were redlined. And so it meant that if you lived in those communities, you want to own a home, it will cost you a lot more as a result of it because those loans were actually more risky and also the interest rates were a lot higher. So those who were able to buy, right, um, Black families that were able to buy in those communities had to pay more. Also, because of these, those communities were actually accruing the same amount of assets and wealth, those area, those individuals had less assets to actually put towards um, providing resources for their actual families. And then you add to that this idea of reverse redlining. So right. those same communities became the targets of reverse redlining, which was the subprime loans. Um, high interest loans that were actually targeting those communities added another layer of precarity. And that had an impact on the people now living in those areas. So a place like South Central Los Angeles that was historically redlined as a black community now has a larger Latino population that is now being racialized in the same way and is now having a negative impact on their actual outcomes and increasing the, the likelihood of them experiencing homelessness as well. So I think when we think about the connection of who is experiencing homelessness. Everyone can experience it. However, because of our policies and the legacies of our policies and also the discrimination we have now, there are certain populations that are overrepresented within our homeless population. Earl, you just beautifully connect the dots for listeners to understand how homelessness is a direct result uh, the, the episode that we talked about around housing with Megan Gallagher, she talked about redlining, the history of redlining, who could get loans, who couldn't buy houses, how it related to voting and a whole lot of other issues. Uh, Jen Askew, Erica Frankenberg talked about how segregation by race and income has fueled where we are today uh, economically, socially. So I think you just, just connect the dots in a few minutes. I was hoping you wouldn't, you already went there. Matt, did you want to add to what Earl was saying? I think Earl said it really well, and you've got that context that Earl's laid really beautifully uh, with respect to how structural racism has affected disproportionately students and families of colors and put them at higher risk of homelessness today. And you have that happening in the context of relatively stagnated wages while we have rapidly increasing rent and families of color disproportionately depend on rent because they've they've not had access to home financing for decades. And so the greatest source of wealth in our country is home ownership. And that's something that students and families of color predominantly don't have access to. They're depending more on the rental market. Last year, uh, Redfin published a report that showed that for the first time in our nation's history, the median rent had exceeded $2,000 per unit. Wow. 
So you have all of this happening at a time when families are struggling to be able to uh, obtain enough income and resources. So that has knock-on knock -on effects. And you've got, um, to some extent, this response system. So to tie it back to the definitional or eligibility issues right. that Earl had spoken to, you've got these big structural issues that are leading to higher and higher rates of student homelessness. Mm -hmm. And we know what those causes are, but we have systems and policies that allocate a very small share of resources to addressing them. And so we're, we're having to allocate those in the form of crisis response and having to literally triage, like, like we're on a battlefield, triage a small number of students and families to access a very limited number of resources. I often think of our homelessness response system in the United States similar to treating the emergency room as the whole of a healthcare system. Right. It wouldn't make sense in healthcare. It doesn't make sense in homelessness and housing, but it's exactly what we do. So I think this is where educational advocates can partner with and collaborate with housing resource advocates because we need a much stronger allocation of affordable housing resources, both on supply and on rental assistance and cash assistance for students and families to be able to access uh, greater housing resources. And so that we're moving those resources more upstream. We're not waiting for these students to come in an emergency room. Right. Because by the time they get there, the crisis is so severe that we have lost years of precious educational and human capital development opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we have exposed our students to far more trauma and lifetime adversity than, than they should have ever had to. But if we can move these resources to a, a much greater investment for housing for, for students and their families, and we can move them upstream, we can start to take a much more public health-oriented approach to this issue. Coming up after the break, how the student homelessness crisis requires an all-hands-on-deck approach. Matt and Earl connect the dots between housing, segregation, and education. One thing that comes up often is there's a gap between where housing is and where the quality schools are. It's extremely important that leaders are having conversations across sectors and across institutions. If you are a principal, if you're a superintendent, your job can not only be to operate within your own domain, it has to be operating with other individuals to ensure that you have some cohesion and also some alignment. Mm -hmm. Not enough conversations happening across the board. It's actually stunting our opportunities to actually build and actually create allyships for policies that are going to help the overall well-being of our actual children. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote. I made this podcast to further the conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a homeless liaison, maybe a parent, Maybe you make policy at the state level or the city level, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation, and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So, 
Earl, we talked about housing and getting assistance and focusing on prevention early, but what other policies do you and Matt and Melissa talk about in the chapter that that you think listeners should hear and understand? Another big part of going back to the the charity model that we kind of have right now and also aligning with this false perception that we don't have enough funds to actually get things done. So the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act is the most comprehensive policy that we have on, on the books to support students experiencing homelessness. However, it's underfunded. There's not enough funds that's allocated towards it. And it's a competitive grant. So most districts actually do not have the actual grant. And so one of the first policy initiatives that we can do within schools is have that become a fully funded policy and ensure that all school districts have those actual resources and those funds. We saw a window into the opportunities in terms of the potential that we can do when we have more funding Mm -hmm. Uh, as a result of the ARP funding, American Rescue Plan due to COVID, homeless, um, dedicated funding for students experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. We saw homeless liaisons use that money in a lot of different ways. So one way, for example, is hiring additional staff. Mm -hmm. Another thing uh, of a district did in um, LA County was they created an internship program. Right. So they actually were able to actually provide housing opportunity or employment opportunities for students who are experiencing homelessness or those who um, recently were able to get out of homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, in Massachusetts, there's new education and housing partnerships that are popping up where they're actually uh, incentivizing their um, districts to actually create new partnerships with housing providers mm. that could also look in the, the lens of having housing navigators to better mm-hmm. support students who are experiencing homelessness and their families. So when we have additional funding and actual adequate funding for the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act grant, then we can do different things. Um, another really important part, thinking about it from the structural perspective, is the homeless liaisons within the districts that have been historically marginalized, they have a very, very hard time trying to establish the partnerships they need as a result of the lack of investment within those actual communities. Got so it. for example, we know that you know a large number, um, disproportionate number of Black people are experiencing homelessness and Black students are experiencing homelessness. We need to invest in Black community-based organizations that are site-based within these communities in order to build them up so they actually can play a role in being a one, uh, intervention for students who are experiencing homelessness, but also a more longer-term solution. I had an opportunity to start a, a nonprofit mentoring program in South Central Los Angeles, and two-thirds of the students I was working with either experienced homelessness or were experiencing homelessness. Um, and that wasn't by design. That was just um, a community-based organization that was helping individuals in the community. And so as a result of that, I was providing stipends, I was providing different types of resources that was out of the scope of my actual program because I was being responsive to the actual community I was actually serving. What I was doing is something I found in my research that a lot of um, Black uh, community-based organizations are doing. They're providing opportunities and access to meet the needs of the kids they're actually working with. However, they have a limited um, number of resources and they're not being invested in in the way that they should be in order to actually do that work. So I think a really important part of thinking about this is, mm-hmm. one, funding the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act, but then two, 
looking at how do we actually provide resources and stability within the actual communities to right. act as a buffer. And it sounds like, Earl, major issues that many community-based organizations are not eligible for state or federal funds out of the gate. We give sometimes resources to agencies or county offices of ed or districts, but community-based organizations are are ready and willing and oftentimes are, are most connected and can do the most, but it's the wrong pocket problem as we've heard in another episode where it's there, but you can't access it. So shifting to, to the chapter's conversation around best practices and Earl talked about Massachusetts. He talked about strategic use of one-time funds for the American Rescue Plan. Tell us about Upstream and the Upstream model. And you both are really trying to make a shift to get us to think about prevention and Upstream work, not waiting till students get to, to the ER. But what can we learn from Upstream as we think about policies for our country? Upstream is an adaptation of a model that originally started in Australia, and it really does counter this, this idea uh, that homelessness and, and poverty are just facts of life and we have to live with them. It really challenges that notion and says, no, actually, we have enough information and insight to be able to identify students' risk for homelessness um, early and to engage earlier to disrupt those pathways into homelessness, just like we would apply that kind of prevention logic to any other public health issue reaching from COVID-19 to HIV AIDS to diabetes. We can do that in homelessness too. Mm. And we have a fair amount of data to work with uh, and insights that helps us start to move upstream, but it takes reorienting our systems and investing in uh, a prevention model and a prevention lens. So mm -hmm. upstream is a, a model that started in a, a community called Geelong of Australia. We found it in an evidence review. We, we were conducting a thorough analysis of all of the evaluations of programs and practices to date to both prevent and address youth and young adult homelessness. This is one that was shown um, in Australia through evaluation to reduce the incidence of homelessness by 40% and of student dropout by 20%. And that's one of the things that's really essential in the, the model is an acknowledgement that when we're addressing homelessness, especially from a prevention perspective, we're tackling underlying risk and protective factors that are also related to students remaining engaged and successful in school. So when we're, when we're tackling homelessness, this is really about tackling educational equity at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it involves a universal screening process. That's what really is, makes this a prevention model. So rather than wait until a student is in crisis, they're walking into the emergency room, so right. to speak, because their situation is so dire and it's very clear that they don't have a place to stay and somehow their situation escalates in a student liaison or a, a teacher notices it or somebody in the lunchroom notices it. We're trying to capture enough information early on through a universal screener that Chapin Hall has adapted and worked with a couple of school systems to apply. It's called the Student Strengths and Needs Survey. And it's very brief, takes about 15, 20 minutes for a student to complete. Every student, unless they or their families opt out, takes the survey once a year and it captures basic risk and protective factors, like whether they are worried about experiencing homelessness or disengaging from schools, whether there's a certain level of family conflict or instability, if there's some early experiences of running away or not, uh, or experiencing homelessness or other factors that we know to predict future homelessness. A list is generated from that um, student strengths and needs survey administration. And then based on that list, the school comes from a supportive position, position right. 
has conversations with students and their families about whether there are additional resources that they need. And there's a community-based partnership with organizations that are there to deliver both youth and family-centric supports and services and connections to local housing and other types of resources that could disrupt those pathways into homelessness. So this isn't rocket science. It actually builds on a very common approach that many school systems are implementing with multi-tiered systems of support uh-huh. or response to intervention models that simply mean you're you're implementing school-wide interventions, but you're targeting and tailoring the right level of support to the right student and the right family at the right time. And what it does is it adapts that model around an upstream prevention approach Mm. to student homelessness and school dropout. And uh, I think there are practices and elements of this work that could be further implemented, evaluated, and if shown effective, uh, brought to scale for communities. The final question for today, for both of you, And this is the hardest question to answer typically. Earl, what's the one thing you want listeners to understand from today's conversation? One major takeaway would be we all have a role. Mm -hmm. So thinking about it from my lens as a teacher, If we don't build trusting relationships with our students, we don't build environments within schools that they feel loved and they feel like they have a support system, they're not disclosing that they're experiencing homelessness. And we're not getting to the point where we can actually do any um, multi-tiered levels of support. It's extremely important that teachers and school leaders are creating climates that are allowing students to actually feel loved feel cared for and feel like school and education is an actual opportunity for them to build upon their lives. If you are a community member, you see yourself as someone who is dictating and moving policy, it's extremely important to recognize that not only should we be advocating for more housing, more deeply affordable housing, we also have to connect that to quality of school. Those communities also need high quality schools. One thing that comes up often is there's a gap between where housing is and where the quality schools are, which requires a toggling to happen for that family. They have to go away to school and come back to a place. It should be in one location. And lastly, it's extremely important that leaders are having conversations across sectors and across institutions to really make sure that we're actually helping kids. If you're a principal, if you're a superintendent, your job can not only be to operate within your own domain, it has to be operating with other individuals, your counterparts and different agencies to ensure that you have some cohesion and also some alignment. Mm -hmm. Not enough conversations happening across the board. And as a result of that, it's actually stunting our opportunities to actually build and actually create allyships for policies that are going to help the overall well-being of our actual children. Well put, Earl. Matt. In the richest country in the world, homelessness is a solvable problem. These are complex, challenging issues and uh, didn't happen overnight. We won't solve them overnight, but this is a solvable problem. 
And I think it's really important that educational advocates and homelessness housing advocates are supporting each other's agendas. Uh, we cannot get to educational success and equity without housing and students being stably housed. At the same time, we cannot end homelessness without investing in, as, as Earl said very well, high quality education that's available to all students because we know that education, educational attainment, success, the relationships that people build while they're in school are highly predictive of their long-term success and their income uh, and their wealth. And that's key uh, to getting on long-term paths to safe and stable housing and reducing intergenerational poverty. Dr. Matt Morton and Dr. Earl Edwards make it very clear. Homelessness for young people is the direct result of structural racism and the policies we've enacted or failed to enact. We built this house and we can deconstruct it. In case you want a recap of where we should go from here to address a solvable crisis, here it is. One, we need more models like the upstream model first implemented in Geelong, Australia, and now being scaled in Northern California to prevent homelessness from even taking shape and providing intensive case management to struggling families. Two, a common comprehensive definition of student homelessness is needed to avoid confusion and help students and families get services quickly. Three, we have to get away from the charity model as Earl Edwards explains, making investments in youth with housing insecurities a central policy agenda for our country. Four, universal screening tools like the student strengths and needs assessment that Matt Morton mentioned can help identify housing needs early instead of further down the line when youth are struggling more. Five, education systems and a high quality education are an essential part of a response to the homelessness crisis. Schools and teachers are often the first responders to the crisis, but they don't have to be if we do a better job of detecting housing challenges early. Over 1 million young people, mostly youth of color, deserve a rapid response to the homelessness crisis. Last but not least, please contact a homelessness liaison in your school district to see how you can help or organizations like Schoolhouse Connection who are advocating for policy change in Congress and in state houses right now. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. <laughs>